Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the past tense of disappear here. That's a bit of a cryptic title. It refers to two other works that I want to cover from my past today. And then after this point, I think I'm going to shift my focus more toward other people's stories for a little bit. But there are a couple of things I want to do today. I want to do one more look back at a class reunion story. And I want to cover one more poem from Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism. But first, I want to ask the question, how do you know you're a bigot? And this has come up because of some recent news and the reply and response nationwide to the news from the Boy Scouts of America as an organization. But first, why Stitcher? Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher Smart Radio. And with Stitcher's free mobile app, you can listen to your favorite radio programs or podcasts anytime and anywhere you want. Stitcher has a wide breadth of programming, news, news alerts, but also sports, talk, entertainment, and much more. The one thing for inappropriate conversations that Stitcher doesn't necessarily do a great job of, though, is the blog post. If I'm putting up a podcast, Stitcher shows up roughly about the same amount of time it takes for the program to show up on iTunes. But with a blog post, there isn't any translation there. So it's still a good idea from time to time to visit www.inappropriateconversations.org. On the .org site, on the right navigation bar, there's a list of categories. These categories are essentially related to the different drummer. If you are going back and trying to find a particular different drummer from a particular show, the categories can help you weed out who's a sports athlete versus a film director versus a musician versus somebody who's speaking uh, as an authority figure from a political or a theological perspective. There's also the very last entry in that is called intro, and that is simply promotional entries, the first couple of episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, and articles. Under articles is where I've tried to group all of these blog posts. And one of the blog posts, dating all the way back to last year, June 30th of 2012, was one called Asking Honest Questions Can Build Character in the Boy Scouts of America Challenge. Now, this was, again, a year ago. The Boy Scouts were just deciding what they were going to do. And at the time, the specific focus was on people who were gay in leadership positions, wanting to host a pack or a den, depending on what level of Boy Scouts you're talking about, or even to play a role as an assistant in some manner. And the Boy Scouts at that time had made an essentially um, negative decision in my mind that if you're gay, you're not welcome to participate. And you'd assume that this means a fairly narrow reading of the spectrum. I'm assuming bisexuals are not welcome to participate either, or transgendered people, whether they've made any sort of uh, surgery-based transition or not. So a very strict reading of that. And to me, I resist the idea of looking at that particular decision and dropping terms like bigotry into the mix. To me, there is a key difference and an important difference between the concept of homophobia and the concept of bigotry. And it's probably not a good thing that we might be tempted to mix those two ideas together. In many ways, I see homophobia as part of a journey. It's a journey that many Christians have to go through to get to the place where Jesus is waiting for them. 
it's a journey that anybody who has lived in this country long enough to have a traditional mindset, a, a conservative idea of how things have always been. The idea that how things have always been is how they always should be. Well, that's an element of growth. I quoted Leo Biscaglia a couple of episodes back. And paraphrasing, Biscaglia essentially said, one of the ways you know you're not learning anymore is if you've stopped growing. If there is no change, then there certainly is no learning taking place. There's no growth involved because growth is change. So I cut people who are dealing on the spectrum of homophobia enough slack that maybe by providing some light to them instead of some darkness and judgment, they will continue to grow into a different spot than they're in now. I'm not saying that they're going to come along and line up with my worldview exactly, but as long as they're moving, as long as they've not entrenched their position, petrified in their worldview, I'm willing to let that go. My point a year ago with the Boy Scouts was the question, who is sexualizing this conversation? At what point does somebody's relationships, their desires, who they love, become an inherently sexual idea? And I think that we are much too casual about aligning those two thoughts as if they are really the same thing. And I usually describe it to people this way. I'm going to use some medical terminology. I'm going to use medical terminology around sexual concepts, but I'm trying my best for this episode not to get an explicit tag. So, you know, be warned. I'm going to head in a slightly adult direction here, but I think it's really important that we understand this. If I were to go over to your house uh, to meet you, either at a party or at a prearranged gathering, and to show up by myself and to introduce myself and say, hello, I'm Greg. Nice to meet you. I'm sorry that my wife couldn't be here tonight. Is your immediate assumption about me, the thing about me that overrules anything else you might assume about my personality, my handshake, my tone of voice, our reason for getting together, whether it be a social engagement or a business engage engagement, does all of that disappear at the mention of my wife and leave you almost exclusively with one thought? Hey, I bet this guy enjoys cunnilingus. What would you think about yourself if that were a true statement? What would you think about a friend of yours at the same gathering, at the same initial introduction, pulling you aside and saying, hey, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with this guy. You know, I heard him talk. I heard his tone of voice. I heard him mention his wife. This guy probably enjoys cunnilingus. There's something wrong with him. I think you probably think there's something wrong with your friend. And the, the reason that you'd think there's something wrong with your friend, hey, it might be that, that your friend is introducing sexual ideas into a non-sexual context, and that's wrong. It might be that your friend is making assumptions which are not in evidence, and, and that's wrong. It may be that your friend is assuming that one aspect of somebody's personality, whether true or not, trumps all other things about that individual, and that is obviously wrong. And yet I bet that many people I know personally would not hesitate to make the exact same mistake or tolerate the exact same mistake if they met that same person for the first time said hey my name is Greg it is good to meet you uh, I'm glad we've had a chance to get together my husband is unavailable to be here today or my my uh, male life partner can't be here because he's at work right now if I introduce myself in that way why is it that people many people like the leadership of the Boy Scouts of America, can't think anything else in that situation except, hey, I bet this guy enjoys fellatio. It's about time we pointed to these people and said, there is not something wrong with this man you've just met for the first time that you're casting judgment on. There is something wrong with you. You are incapable of meeting people, of interacting with people in social ways, of having a public conversation. Now, granted, a public conversation you wouldn't have had in public 50 years ago. 
but nevertheless a public conversation without you sexualizing the context of the situation. We hear, well, you know, I don't have anything against gay people. I just wish they weren't so out about it. Well, who's out in this situation? I'm happy to meet you. I'm sorry. My life partner can't be with me. How is that statement sexual? No, 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 no. A year ago, my point was, it's hard to be patient with the leadership of the Boy Scouts of America. It's hard to be patient with those who speak on their behalf, especially those who do so with a great deal of you know, hatred in their voice and in their assumptions. But I still think there's a difference between homophobia and bigotry. Now, here's the good news. For, you know, not the first time, of course, but for a rare time, I think we've really been given a magic moment where we can look and say, hey, you know what? If you're one of these people who, as perhaps a Christian, have had really strong ideas about homosexuality, strong negative ideas about it, if you believe that there's an agenda, if you believe that these evil, immoral people are trying to take over our country and destroy the world as we know it, and ironically hasten the second coming of Christ, which is supposed to be a good thing, right? I'm not sure about that. But if you're one of those people, and you've probably asked yourself, hey, I keep, t- I keep having to tell people over and over and over again, I'm not a bigot. Well, are you sure? Are you sure you're not a bigot? Well, thanks to the Boy Scouts, we have a way of testing this. It's a wonderful test. You see, the Boy Scouts of America have recently changed policy, not on the leadership of the group, but on participation in the group. And they've essentially said that if you're a young person, a young man, and you want to be in the Boy Scouts, and you want to do things the Boy Scouts way, so you're going you're gonna to take a pledge, you're going you're gonna to advance both your, your knowledge and your learning and your spiritual life, you're going to grow both physically and emotionally, and you're going to restrain from immoral behavior, including premarital sexual behavior, that you're welcome to be in the Boy Scouts, even if you have come to realize that your identity is gay, that you have a sexual orientation that's gay, that you are, to make it as simple as we can, you are attracted to and feel a great strong desire to spend your life in a personal, intimate relationship with a man someday. If you're that person, you're now welcome to be part of the Boy Scouts. Now, this has been you know, probably as controversial as I thought. I'd love to say that it's more controversial than I thought. But it really has probably been as controversial as I thought. Uh, from articles I've read, the Roman Catholic Church seems split on it. Um, uh, those priests and bishops who are intelligent have spoken well and said, no, this isn't a problem. We've always asked people to delay their sexual behavior, and the, the Scouts are a good organization, and this brings more people into the organization the Southern Baptists have predictably freaked out and are threatening, by and large, to kick all scouting organizations out of their churches and then not provide any, any uh, home or any facilities for Boy Scouts anymore. Other Protestant groups are waffling, probably about what you would expect. But on a personal level, just person to person, who are you in this situation? If you look at this change in Boy Scouts policy and you have some doubt, well, that doubt could be garden variety fear, and we call that fear homophobia. And if you're, you know, if you're hypersensitive about that word being applied to you, you probably shouldn't be because I think all, probably most heterosexual people either have now or have at some point in their past wrestled with this. And if you fail to wrestle with it, you've probably been pinned by it. You probably lost the fight. You probably, you know, not just somebody dealing with homophobia, you're probably a homophobe, which is, again, a term I try to resist because I try to, to leave the label out of it, to take the ad hominem out of it and give people room to grow and develop in a different direction. But some people are firmly entrenched in their positions. And for those people, the term bigot probably applies. So here it is. Here's the test. Really simple. 
If you support this new policy of the Boy Scouts of America, you are not a bigot. Of course, that's a pretty low standard. You know, we, we probably can do better than that. If you are opposed to this policy, then something is dishonest in your worldview. Either you are a bigot or you are probably a bigot and certainly a hypocrite in your love the sinner, hate the sin talk, which itself is probably due to bigotry. Or you secretly believe that the Boy Scouts are all about encouraging teens and preteens to explore their sexuality. To which I ask, is there a hit it before you quit it badge? Because you know what? I stopped being part of the organization right in that you know realm between the end of Cub Scouts and the beginning of Weeblows. But if I knew that in high school I could have earned a hit it before you quit it badge, I might have stuck around and become a full-fledged Boy Scout somewhere along the way. The reality is that the Boy Scouts are not a secret society designed to teach men how to take sexual advantage of women. It's not designed to show you the greatest masturbation techniques and to help help you, you know, ramp up your fantasy world to the next level. As a group, it is all about focusing elsewhere and having an expectation, whether implicit or explicit, to say, hey, we're not talking about sexual behavior. That comes later. Well, how is that any different from when churches tell gay people that we're not saying that you're going to hell because of your, your orientation? We're saying it's because of your behavior and that if you could just live your life as a celibate homosexual, God will be happy as a, as a, happy as a clam with you. Well, you know what? I have just described the current Boy Scouts policy because the current Boy Scouts policy has an expectation that there's not going to be any of this behavior, heterosexually or homosexually. So if you're opposed to gay people stepping foot in your church, your Southern Baptist church, if you're opposed to gay people participating in scouts because you don't understand the term openly gay as being anything else than actively engaging in sex acts, you are a bigot. Now, I realize I've just called Roman Catholic priests and bishops bigots. I've just called the entire Southern Baptist convention collectively as a group of people who are they should be on their guard. They, they probably at this point need to prove to me that they're not bigots because their policy is hypocritical. Everything they say is true about waiting till marriage and that the sin is in the behavior, not in the emotions that you're dealing with, has been betrayed by their opposition to this policy. So thank you. Thank you to the Boy Scouts of America. It is not always easy, at least not for me, to draw this clear and clean distinction that I'd like to draw between what does it mean for you to be you know, dealing with homophobia and struggling with things you don't understand and a full-fledged, outright, unrepentant bigot who ought to be denounced for your bigotry in a very aggressive way. Well, we've got it right here. If you as a church have no home for somebody because they are dealing with homosexual temptation, I question whether you're a church. I don't question whether you're a bigot. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS Patient Care and Research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I, for one, am glad that this Boy Scouts issue came up in a week when the material that I'm dealing with is somewhat shorter in length. Of the two main essays that I've written in my life after high school reunions, and the reason there's two is that I've only been to two reunions, 
This one's the shorter of the two, and, and to my mind, the less significant of the two. In Inappropriate Conversation 71, called Breast Deduction, I shared an essay that I wrote after my wife's 10-year reunion called Struts. Well, this one, one year earlier in time from a journaling perspective, is one called Past Tense. And I think I've mentioned it before a couple of times, pun intended, with the spelling of the word T-E-N-T-H-S, getting past that 10th reunion. And to cover this particular material, to go on this personal storytelling route just one more time, and then breaking that up with some future material that takes us in a different direction, I feel like I need to introduce one biblical concept first, or one perhaps extra biblical concept, because I wanted to name a few names. I'm going to stick with first names only. And I couldn't have gotten to this essay before. It seems strange to say you've been doing this for two or three years now, and now you're finally getting to this story. It's older than the other one. Well, the reason is that I'm naming some names now that will make sense if you've kept up to date with recent inappropriate conversation shows. Names like Marcy, Janet will come up. Other names that maybe are less meaningful, but there's one name I intend to not use. And I don't think I can cover this material without talking about this individual. This individual is very influential, but I've not really done much with this relationship. And I'm going to just call her Q. And the reason I'm going to do that is, again, I feel like I've got a personal connection, even if it's a decades-old personal connection with the other people that I've talked about. And even though I feel like that there's something important, some spiritual connection in this case as well, some sacredness to the friendship, I don't have the same quality of relationship that I feel like I'm comfortable enough to say, well, let's drop a few names here. So trying to come up with a euphemism that would work, a couple of things appealed to me about the letter Q. One was, of course, back when I was in school, there was a designer drug that was incredibly popular that started with a Q. And uh, I don't know why... And I don't really care why, because I'm happy for the news either way, that it faded from popularity. My guess is that the underground market for ecstasy probably drowned out the market for quaaludes. So I'm going to use the letter Q in this case. The other thing that Q does, though, is it makes a reference to New Testament sort of history, the, uh, you know, the literary archaeology of the New Testament, in terms of saying, hey, what does it mean to refer to what you might call hidden source material? lost source material, material that is in, in many ways anonymous. So the first four Gospels in the New Testament, the first four books of that part of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and scholars are convinced, and I'm persuaded by their argument, that there is a supplemental text at play behind the synoptic Gospels. Now, those synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, regarded as coming into its form later, and from a different angle, different set of sources. And the thing about this is that, you know, there's some Christians, uh, some conservative, politically conservative Christians, who get very uptight with this seemingly factual piece of information, that there is unmistakably and undeniably a common thread of stories and events told between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes they're placed in different sequences and contexts, uh, sometimes the verbiage is a little bit different in terms of who says what first, who says what second. But essentially, there are a number of stories that are in common between those three Gospels. Now, to me, that's not an issue for many reasons. First, each one of those Gospels has either storytelling or perspectives that is unique to it. Sermon on the Mount only appears in Matthew. The story of Zacchaeus climbing a sycamore tree to see Jesus in a crowd only appears in Luke. Mark's gospel is still widely regarded as the first of the three, and in some ways, perhaps influencing the other two on its own steam. 
But for people who believe, who have this notion that the Holy Spirit seized control of somebody in a demonic possession kind of a way, and they sat down and in one long night of the soul wrote the entire story front to back, and that's what it means to call the Bible the inspired Word of God. You know, I, I don't have that kind of supernatural imagery in my head. The Bible can be the inspired Word of God, even if it was written over a very long period of time, and even if what we call Mark's Gospel actually has several authors, and even if things that appear in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke were inspired by Mark's Gospel, or if all three were inspired by other material, and if this concept of Q being an underlying piece of information, a, a primary source supporting the writing of those Gospels is in some ways sort of a secondary history storytelling, that there may be multiple forms of that cue as well, that there really isn't a place where we have this one event where the clouds part and the sun shines down and the angels sing and the story is written down, that truthfully, many people from many corners of the world, some identifying as disciples, some not, probably journaled either in an oral tradition or in a written tradition, whatever was available for them at the time, about meeting this individual Jesus. Do you seriously think that the woman at the well didn't have something to say about her encounter with Jesus? She wasn't one of the disciples. It's surprising to me that the Catholic Church hasn't renamed her Mary, because a lot of the original church leaders, specifically in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, before the Protestant Reformation, became obsessed with trying to make all of the Marys in the Bible one person, with the exception of the mother of Jesus, who they sometimes don't view as being fully human. Yeah, I have a problem with that. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is one Mary. Mary from Magdala is a different Mary. Mary from Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha, is a different Mary. And all of these people, some of whom we wouldn't even you know, dream of describing as being disciples per se, but were some part of Jesus's entourage, some like the woman at the well in John's gospel, not part of the entourage. You think they had nothing to say? You think they, they wrote nothing down? Do you think that for a hundred years there was no biblical material and then suddenly, boom, here's the scriptures? It didn't work that way. And this idea of Q is a concept that says, hey, people were writing about Jesus all along. And some of those writings became codified. Some of them were carried on missionary trips by people like Paul and Barnabas and were shared with churches. In letters to and from churches and Paul, there's references to what we shared with you in the scriptures, this idea of Q. So I'm going to refer to this idea of Q as being, what is, this, what is the wild card in my storytelling? What is the anonymous piece of esoteric, unpublished source material? What's the primary source between the end of my junior year and the end of my senior year in high school where there's a gap? And I sometimes refer to, well, you know, things that have been powerfully true in my relationship with women like Janet and Marcy and Spider. Well, what happened in between Janet and Marcy? What happened in between Marcy and Spider? And the answer to that question is Q. The other thing to know going into past tense is that the entire way of my dealing with my emotions and, and to be honest, somewhat my disappointment in my 10th high school reunion was I could only really convey it using sort of a joking literary math. So each one of these sections in this document are going to refer to formulaic expressions, trying to help me understand why I reacted the way I did, and why an occasion that any objective documentarian would have thought was a good time was had by all, including Greg. Well, Greg had some misgivings. Greg had some doubts. And I don't like this essay as much as the one that I wrote a year later after my wife's reunion, because in some ways, the one 
the year later after my wife's reunion was interesting because of what was there. And this one was interesting primarily because of what was not. Here's past tense, starting with the first section, the formula. The sole purpose here is to jot down a few quick ideas so I don't forget. Taking a statement now will preserve this evidence in the event it subsequently becomes necessary to use these views against me. For the sake of argument, let's call this June 24th, 1992. It's really a day earlier, but I like the number 24 better, and this is, after all, just for the sake of argument. The topic for debate is my just-completed 10th high school reunion. The given. Marcy, Janet, Julie, Kelly, and Mark did not show. Q did. With the help of at least some of the other five, though, a conversation with Q had little chance of exploding, causing massive property damage and injuring dozens. Take Y, X, A. My parameters. On a not-so-selfish note, these key absences upset what was, for me, the delicate balance of our high school. Defense. I can contradict the view that my disappointment was purely selfish by presenting the names of many others I wanted to see and who did attend. Blake, Clint, Barrett, Jim, Spencer. I'd also like to add some unexpected surprises. Sharon, Mary and David, and fellow premature affluent case studies, Lynette and Mark. Even though I don't exactly know why I didn't anticipate seeing these people, I'm nevertheless glad I did. Offense. For 15 years, I've made a defensive effort not to trash people. Sort of a predictive and protective use for the golden rule. I'm not looking to change that now. To do so would smack a blasphemy. After all, what cause did Tim have to be friendly to me? Yet, he was. To respect all the quiet tolerances I received this week, I'll make this offense a conservative one. Such an approach shouldn't be too difficult for me. As I was telling my wife while we were disappearing slightly early the final night, I doubt anyone would have expected a conspicuous reaction from me at this event. You don't focus your invisibility skills for five years and then cast off the role of spectator at such a dubious moment. At least I don't. Or didn't. Y is greater than or equal to X plus A. Nothing clicked. Or perhaps based on the spelling, nothing clicked. Back to the point. I saw my high school class as a tenuously balanced, forced conglomeration of cliques. I'm not alone. You can consult my list of no-show classmates to relieve any doubts you may have about my deposition. Yet I can speak with singular authority without their help. My official list of high school activities can be condensed to band, newspaper, and honor roll. How is this isolating? One, band isolates you from football, pep club, and social groups. Obviously, you can't play both ways on the field. Either you tackle or you march. At halftime, when the pep clubsters are congregating, you are working. During the third quarter, you are off and they are back in the seats. What this does to social engagements is further aggravated by 5.45 a.m. practices. No night owling there. Two, newspaper was only isolating in the sense that it is very public. No non-sporting group meets in such a glass house. My personality responded to this aspect of journalism class by being introspective. Somewhat understandably, many people who didn't know me didn't appreciate my introversion. Also somewhat inexcusably is my response to those who chose to judge. 3. Honor Roll It's not a club. 
Hell, the National Honor Society, of which I also count as a member, is barely a club. No one votes you onto the honor roll, or at least we can presume as much for the sake of argument and move on. If Marcy and Q wanted to know why I attempted a case study of intersexual friendship during my senior year, Janet and several others can provide the details. But honor roll is the concise answer. Maybe a great many people found their names on the dean's list without thinking very deeply about anything. But I didn't. Now, if my twisted worldview could isolate me from the people with whom I shared sacred history, it's quite easy to see how honor roll could isolate me from others. My foray into this one person's past is only part of the puzzle. Not only do I leave out entire cliques like the upper middle class set, the UMC, but I have no means to examine the cliques within those cliques. I do know the divisions existed because I could see them from inside my own groups. Though I cared very much about both Sherry and Sandy, something other than age prevented any convergence among those band members. And the fact that newspaper was the only real link between Janet and Marcy formed their separation. Y minus X does not equal A. Janet rules. Old material I'll grant, but it's here in the essay. While I can only guess about what divided other cliques into sub-cliques, I'm willing to do just that. We call it an educated guess, though, because I can project Janet into the reunion she didn't attend to create an example. Unquestionably part of the UMC. My only personal experiences with Janet grew through newspaper. All I remember from our first year at school, junior high in this case, are instances of her keeping the Susans and the Shelleys of the world at a friendly but comfortable arm's distance. Like me, most of her close friends were in other graduating classes. I don't know if I could name anybody except David that she might identify as a best friend, and their recent marriage makes this a non-qualifying exception. The Optimist. I hope it's not vanity, but I believe she opened up to me genuinely. I know we talked and listened. I know she made herself vulnerable, and I'd like to think that it wasn't because she was forced. No doubt Janet was strongly aware of my weaknesses, and I have no knowledge that she ever used any of them against me. An opponent might say that she saw me as no threat and easy to take advantage of, but why then would she have sought to strengthen me? The proof of this is that I have the Janet rules to back up this assertion. She taught me never to drink while angry or depressed. She taught me that real friendship between opposite sexes supersedes even the denial, much less the presumption, of a non-platonic relationship. She taught me these things with no guarantees that I wouldn't call on her testimonial at some later date if, say, a Q, for example, questioned my intentions in a similar relationship. If anything, Janet could not have anticipated that I would have found the strength and support to withstand such a challenge alone. Pessimist The antagonist view accepts the Janet rules, but takes as a given that they were conveyed without any intentional teaching on her part. The counterpointing view is simple. I had information about an enemy of hers and a clique she couldn't get the credentials to speak within. I gave her not only the news she needed, but the speaking voice she wanted. She risked very little, since the UMC clique had the power, indeed the God-given mandate, to use people. I risked more. The evidence of my effective standing in the band clique was clear even ten years later. I don't blame Blake, and I don't blame Janet, but a pessimist would. Proof? A pessimist would blame Janet for my risks as a routine part of his depth of pessimism. 
You see, my argument that Janet really cared about me would include telephone calls as my critical evidence. Sure, you can discount talking to a classmate, any classmate, in any class. Sure, Janet may have been just as embarrassed about being seen with me between classes as I should have been about dicing a good friend's sister. What about the telephone conversations? Anyone would take advantage of a chance to confide in someone she trusts. Optimus says your relationship was vital through vulnerability. Pessimist says she knew you didn't have the power to haunt her anyway. The question remains, why would she take time to listen to my situations if she was only using my connections as any UMC member could be drawn to do? Call me an optimist, but I cannot prove any negative answer. Stricken from the record, as unproven, a pessimist would be motivated to find out what outside sources the UMC clique might use for humor. Just as someone from the intelligentsia might regard my Janet rules as pathetic. All right, but in a personal and genuine way. A select group from the UMC might find my half of those conversations embarrassingly, voyeuristically funny. There, I said it. Let's move on, because I don't endorse this point of view for a second. X squared is greater than 2 times y plus x. Assigned seats. Having extrapolated the details of my background with Janet, I think anybody might have a difficult time guessing where she would invest her time at the reunion she missed. How much would go to Terry, Tim, or me? Not having the answer proves my point. The school was composed of cliques. With so many missing links, even someone who so effectively moved through them might have trouble choosing a table during the reunion banquet. I hope this point isn't depressing. Let's face it. I'm pensive and I always have been, but I didn't find the reunion experience depressing, even with such a high rate of missing friends. If anything, I woke up to how important these people are. I had taken for granted that some omnipotent reunion committee would deliver my friends unto me, and that was naive. The UMC clique didn't take care of Janet. The French club clique didn't take care of Marcy. The elected officer clique didn't take care of Mark, and so on. It wasn't my job either, but I'm in no position to spread around a great deal of blame. My disappointment came of my own making, because I wasn't thinking ahead and making connections. I forgot that I wouldn't have more than a word to say to most of the people in other cliques without these friends there as contacts. A conversation with Q did not get past cordial. It couldn't without the mention of Marcy. Lacking the college years with Kelly and the year near Julie, I've got about four years completely unaccounted for in a class reunion since. Hell, Janet would have had to introduce me to, well, everybody she knew. Sammy might be the only man at the table who could identify me from a photograph by name. But that's just the kind of person Sam is, and not any particular memory, moment, that I would recall. For these reasons, I felt at times like a Dravidian debating at the Indian Parliament without the benefit of a common English language and most of my translators on strike. My feelings weren't controlled by a sense that I didn't belong, which is odd because I felt that way in high school and nothing substantial has changed during the decade. No, it was more of a sense that I was participating in a process that wasn't capable of providing me with any non-token gesture. Something like the National Honor Society, I suppose. 3x plus 2y divided by 0 equals e. Predictable Conclusions Enough said. On to the highlights. I must not have known that Sharon was married to Chip. That's great. 
a class act for a class act. I like Blake's wife the best of the wives I met, but that may be because I care more about Blake. During the five minutes that I met Clint's wife, I liked her too. You can see the pattern developing. Few of the physical changes among my classmates surprised me, mainly because there were so few changes. Jim is pumping iron. He's still Jim. Valerie has lost weight. Doesn't seem as tall as she did a decade ago. It's a good look. I wish I'd written down all the nice things I predicted about her so I could gloat right now. Susan is even smaller than Valerie. Hope no one takes that as a big compliment. I really wanted to buy Susan a large milkshake. Susan's the only other person who kind of disturbed me, though. Susan and Donna had two of the only reasons I ever attended a modern dance assembly. I think I saw two, but I didn't bring this up because I kind of wanted to ask her where her butt went. I could take the people-didn't-change argument to a double-edged extreme. I wasn't alone in the graduating class among those who held a few of the women, uh, pep club women, not necessarily cheerleaders, but in, you know, women in high esteem. But there are two in particular who are stuck in my visual memory now. I saw more of their bodies this weekend without looking than I did 10 years ago with effort. I don't want to imply that Saturday was show-and-tell day and so-and-so brought her breasts, but it might be better if you drew your own conclusions from the evidence that was no doubt presented to you at some point during the scheduled events. If one goal people bring to a reunion is the notion of making up for lost time, perhaps many of us achieved just that. I'll have to count myself out, though. I wanted to reset the clocks with some classmates who couldn't spare the time. I got all wound up for nothing. Let X equal X. I just end up on a show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi Scheme of Podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, Dan? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. In Inappropriate Conversations 115, called Papa Talked to Me, I was making references to fathers and sons, and specifically the movie Through a Glass Darkly. And at the last minute in that process, I switched the different drummer from Ingmar Bergman to the actress Harriet Anderson. I still feel good about that decision, but it also seems like I shouldn't take too much time before I finish the circle there and cite Ingmar Bergman. And in this topic, this idea of looking back at reunions, dealing with past regrets, trying to sort out disappointments, uh, Bergman's really an excellent choice. When you look at his films, perhaps the earliest one of them in the series being Wild Strawberries, all the way through to Fanny and Alexander and after the rehearsal in particular, there is a theme running throughout his works, particularly the classic era of his work, that has a lot to do with these moments of regret and disappointment, things being built up in your head that fail to live up to your thoughts, and being somebody who's you know essentially a surrealist by nature, uh, somebody who's able to put that visually on the screen uh, in dream sequences, even in hallucinations. We're talking about the movie Wild Strawberries. Uh, it's an excellent example of that whole notion. Just to deal with that one film in particular, which, to be fair, I've only seen in its entirety once. I've seen many clips since, and 
probably am long overdue to see this movie again. Made in 1957, or released then, it features what we might consider to be the classic cast of Bergman. And I'm going to get back to Bergman as an, a director of actors and a director of actors in media beyond just film at the end of this segment. But this one, uh, Victor Shostrom in his last performance, B.B. Anderson, Ingrid Thulin, Gunnar Bjornstrand, Max von Sydow, lots of people that we would consider to be key members of the Bergman performing troupe, both in film and on stage, are in this movie. And from this point forward, and it may have started a little sooner than this, but from this point forward, you'll see these familiar faces in key and often as not impressive acting roles in each one of his films. Wikipedia describes the plot of Wild Strawberries this way, and I'll quote liberally. Grouchy, stubborn, and egotistical Professor Isak Borg is a widowed 78-year-old physician specialized in bacteriology. Before specializing, he served as a general practitioner in rural Sweden. He sets out on a long car ride from Stockholm to Lund to be awarded an honorary degree 50 years after receiving his doctorate from the same university. He is accompanied by his pregnant daughter-in-law, Marianne, who does not much like her father-in-law and is planning to separate from her husband, Ivan, Isaac's only son. During the trip, Isaac is forced by nightmares, daydreams, and old age, and impending death, to reevaluate his life. He meets a series of hitchhikers, each of whom sets off dreams and reveries into Borg's troubled past. The first group consists of two young men and their companion, a woman named Sarah who is adored by both men. Sarah is a double for Isaac's love of his youth, played and that icon is played by the same actress. The first group remains with him throughout his journey. Next, Isaac and Marianne pick up an embittered middle-aged couple whose vehicle is nearly collided with theirs. The pair exchanges such terrible vitriol and venom that Marianne stops the car and demands that they leave. The couple reminds Isaac of his own unhappy marriage. He reminisces about his childhood at the seaside and, and his sweetheart, Sarah. He is confronted by his loneliness and aloofness, and recognizing these traits in both his ancient mother and his middle-aged physician's son, he gradually begins to accept himself, his past, his present, and his approaching death. Borg finally arrives at his destination and picks up his prize, but it proves to be an empty ritual. Later on, as he goes to bed in his son's home, he is overcome by a sense of peace and dreams of a family picnic by the lake. Closure and affirmation of life have finally come, and Borg's face radiates joy. So essentially, a series of hallucinations, dreams, memories, flashbacks, all come together in the film Wild Strawberries to take this man on a journey and to reconcile who he is from who he was and who he thinks he was. And this is the kind of thing that this reunion experience brings about. Uh, this idea appears again later in movies like The Silence. Two sisters reconciling their differences in a hotel where they are foreigners and they don't speak the language. And Fanny and Alexander, uh, a childhood story. And the haunting image near the end of that story, where the boys have become separated from their family uh, due to a marriage. They're in a, a what I would describe as the worst kind of religious household, a very judgmental, a very uh, authoritarian and violent religious household finally re you know, being reconciled with the rest of their family, uh, the boy is still haunted by the memories. And one of the more spectacular images in the entire history of Bergman's filmmaking is his, the young boy's hallucinatory recollection of the, the violence that he suffered manifesting itself even in the relative safety of being restored back to his original family home. I've only seen the three-and-a-half-hour theatrical cut 
international cut of Fanny and Alexander. On my list of things to do at some point is to watch the five-plus-hour version that Bergman put together for Swedish television. I'm only assuming that the absolute artistry throughout the three-and-a-half version uh, carries on for the five hours and simply just adds more to the uh, rounding out of the very large cast of characters. From a category perspective, I'm going to cite Bergman under film direction. On one level, that's a little bit short-sighted. He was in many ways a theatrical director. And even when he was making some of these films, he is still functioning as a theatrical director in the film media. It's clear, whether it was television or whether it was you know, cinema, that Bergman was still dealing with an ensemble cast, still dealing with a very wordly impressive screenplay where the dialogue does a lot of the driving for him. He, in some ways, did a good job over his career, aligning himself with two primary cinematographers, two very talented cinematographers, and allowing them to fully collaborate with him and give him someone else who was kind of working in a parallel track on the filmmaking, where Bergman, of course, had final approval. But at some point in these collaborations, you get the impression that there wasn't a heck of a lot of final disapproval necessary because his vision was appearing on screen. But first and foremost, I see him as an actor's director, and he does this in a way that if you were to compare him with someone like Alfred Hitchcock, you would find a stark contrast between the two, where the Hitchcock focus would be primarily on plot and action, less on dialogue, and certainly less on acting. It's a famous quote about Hitchcock, where an actress once asked Hitchcock what her motivation was in this particular scene, and I think his answer was something to the effect of, a paycheck, you're being paid to be an actress. Go go motivate yourself. Or in more than one occasion on sets, trying to calm his the theatricality of his troop down by telling them, hey, folks, this is only a movie. I don't get the impression that those are words likely to have come out of Bergman's mouth. Bergman worked well with actors, and to the degree that he found them frustrating, I think he probably found them less frustrating than your average film director. But I also think it is important to look at Bergman from the perspective of film direction couple of main reasons for that. Although he never really set out to revolutionize international cinema, may have at some level viewed himself as a theatrical director first and a film director second. Uh, he wasn't trying to influence a range of future directors that's as broad in filmmaking style as Woody Allen and Andre Tarkovsky. He has nevertheless done exactly that. We're going to go through a couple of decades now of Lifetime Achievement Awards being presented to directors in ceremonies like the Oscars and have among the people that they cite as major influences, people that they acknowledge as bringing them to the place they were in their careers as artists, Amar Bergman. The other place I think Amar Bergman has had a, a very interesting impact is on the podcast series Movies You Should See. Movies You Should See is part of Simply Syndicated. I'm going to speak at the end or let some friends at the end speak about Simply Syndicated and the direction they've moved in through something called Simply Everything. But the shorthand answer for it is that lots of things which have been relatively unavailable or only available on a purchase-to-play kind of a situation are now part of Simply Everything. Subscribing in a way you might do for something like Netflix. All of this past content, including some future and new content being developed, is available to play straight from the website. It's as if the archives have been opened up. And among the things in the archives that are very interesting are the role Bergman played in the Movies You Should See series. And it, on looking at an index of titles, it may look like, well, the only influence he had must have been the episode Hour of the Wolf. 
But if you know anything about the history of Simply Syndicated, I think you know that the influence of the episode Hour of the Wolf was sweeping, far-reaching, and profound. This is a different drummer who, when not intending to create conflict or placate conflict, has had that kind of, that kind of influence. And on me, he's one of the directors I think first and foremost of when I look back at things in my life where I wonder if it should have played out differently. I wonder if I took the wrong course, or I wonder how I would be perceived or whether I even would be remembered from the perspective of simply being different from everybody else. Different drummer is the phrase I use to describe that. Okay, so let's put the pieces together with one more dip into manifestos of neo-surrealism. And the thought that I have is, what if you put the pieces together between this sense of, you know, not really enjoying, having an uneasiness about a class reunion, even an uneasiness about what it might mean to try to reconnect or refocus a broken relationship with someone like Q without key players there to support me without the explanations that could be provided by a Janet or a Marcy, which I've discussed several times in inappropriate conversation shows. And you put that together with the influence at the time, this being early 90s, of the one and only novel I truly like by Brett Easton Ellis. I wouldn't describe myself as a fan of that particular kind of fiction that was popular at the time by him, Jay McInerney, and others. And even the book Less Than Zero, I've got very mixed feelings about. I did not like the movie adaptation at all. But there are pieces of that prose that still stick with me a little bit and definitely stuck with me at the time. So let me share just a little bit of the writings of Ellis. I think you'll see how that, combined with my reunion experiences, led to a prose poem I call Disappear Here. First, Ellis. People are afraid to merge on highways in Los Angeles. This is the first thing I hear when I come back to the city. Blair picks me up from LAX and mutters this under her breath as she drives on the upramp. She says, people are afraid to merge on the freeways in Los Angeles. Though that sentence shouldn't bother me, it stays in my mind for an uncomfortably long time. Nothing else seems to matter. Not the fact that I'm 18 and it's December and the ride on the plane had been rough the couple from Santa Barbara who were sitting across from me in first class had gotten pretty drunk. Not the mud that had splattered on my legs and my jeans, which felt kind of cold and loose earlier that day at an airport in New Hampshire. Not the stain on the arm of wrinkled, damp shirt I wear, and so forth and so on. He ends the paragraph with saying, All it comes down to is the fact that I'm a boy coming home for a month and meeting someone who I haven't seen for four months, and people are afraid to merge. Or, more to the point, this quote. I turn the radio up, loud. The streets are totally empty, and I drive fast. I come to a red light, tempted to go through it, then stop once I see a billboard that I don't remember seeing, and I look up at it. All it says is, disappear here. And even though it's probably an ad for some resort, it still freaks me out a little, and I step on the gas really hard, and the car screeches as I leave the light. I put my sunglasses on, even though it's pretty, still pretty dark outside, and I keep looking into the rearview mirror, getting this strange feeling that someone's following me. And later on, after a chance meeting, he's staring at me. I stare down and take a drag. 
a deep one off the cigarette. The man keeps staring at me, and all I can think is either he doesn't see me or I'm not here. I don't know why I think that. People are afraid to merge. Wonder if he's for sale. Now, I'm not saying that I took that inspiration in a direct way and did something with it. No, months went by, many months, and other experiences like class reunions happened without much of a direct connection in my head. And even a little bit after that, I finally put my words into writing. And you know what? I have just opened up Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism, and I'm shocked by what I'm seeing, because I've been quoting things from 1992 and thinking about reunion events that would happen. And I would have assumed that I had written Disappear Here after the reunion. The date on it is July 3rd, 1989, almost three years before the reunion experience. This is the poem. I swallowed again and took a good long look at my surroundings. There were four of them by the door. All of the windows were closed tightly, and I wasn't completely certain there weren't bars on the outside. Even if I climbed onto one of the ballroom tables, I couldn't leap to any of the chandeliers hanging off the 12-foot ceiling. My options, or lack of them, made my course of action perfectly clear. Then I was overtaken by the fear. Make that fear. While I had eluded fear for almost a year, I knew it wouldn't be long before the disease once again clutched me in its stranglehold. If I disappear here, I may never become visible again. What else deserves the distinction of capitalization? After all, I don't appoint proper nouns in a cavalier fashion. No, I think you'll find that my fear is the primal fear of every educated mad scientist. Yes, I recall the time I mixed the potion with a tad too much free spirit. I remained invisible only from the waist up. Embarrassing indeed, but not fearsome. Then there was the time I inverted the amounts of masculinity and machismo by mistake. Not that the recipe hinges upon those ingredients. Still it fouled everything, and only my head was left invisible. That night wasn't frightening enough. Katrina took him to her place anyway. My fear is that I built up too much tolerance to the drug. I have to drink more and more to become invisible, and once so, I'm able to focus on less and less. A worse feeling comes from the flashbacks. Sometimes I become invisible when I don't intend to. At my high school reunion, I vanished in the middle of a group conversation. Nobody noticed. I grabbed my hat and made it float through the air. Nobody noticed. I reached out and lifted up Diane's blouse. Nobody noticed. I unzipped the fly on George's pants. Nobody noticed. George didn't even notice. I finally reappeared that night in the swimming pool. Someone I didn't remember asked me how long I'd been under. Hours, I said. The truth is, I've been under for years. Now, I'm so far under, I think the only way out is to vanish into thick air. I know I can do it without being noticed. Deep down, I know I won't be noticed if I never surface again. She started to approach me, and I quickly finished my drink. I'd never seen her before in my life, but she acted as though she knew enough about me to test her theories. She must have been invisible all this time. Perhaps she had been transparent at the same times I was, enough to know exactly what I have been up to. And this time, of course, she knew she had me trapped. Come dance, she said. 
I can read the signs, I told her. Even though I haven't seen you yet, I'm pretty sure I know who you are. I'm also sure you can see right through me. And I'm sure of something else. Even if I could disappear here, it wouldn't get me anywhere. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. Hey, Mandy. Have you heard about Simply Everything? Why, no, Jacob, I've not heard about Simply Everything. What is that? Simply Everything is the paid subscription service provided by Simply Syndicated. I love Simply Syndicated! Which features such great shows as Make It So and Movies You Should See, Do Ask, Do Tell, all the Federation shows like Starbase 66, Nerd Hurdles, The Masters of None. How do I sign up? Well, everything you need to know is at simplysyndicated.com slash everything. Everything? I love everything! For a mere £4.99 pence per month. Is that what it is? That's what it is. 99 pence? I don't know. I don't know how they say it. Like, four ninety-nine pounds. What about four pounds ninety-nine? Four pounds ninety-nine, yeah. For under five pounds? <laughs> For under five pounds of flesh. Not of flesh. That's not what they deal in in the UK? Uh, I don't think so. That's not what a pound is? It's not a pound of flesh? I think so. Everything I know about Shakespeare has led me to believe that a pound is a pound of flesh. Uh, yeah. No, that's in Venice. Oh, right. That's why we're not going to Italy. Yeah. For, on vacation. Right. It's a streaming service, not unlike Netflix. Ooh. When you sign up, you can listen to everything Simply Syndicated has ever made. Whenever you want? Whenever you want. It's simply everything. I might be tempted to describe Disappear Here as a prose poem about things that aren't worth fighting for. Next on Inappropriate Conversations, I intend to look at just the opposite. Things that are desperately worth fighting for. Thanks for listening.